You're listening to Decidedly Dry. I'm your host, Jess Steitzer. This is a sober podcast where we actually focus on the good. Amazing, right? We spark inspiration. We try to provide some hope and we help motivate you. I promise to always keep it real, provide some dry humor, and remind you every single episode why sobriety is truly a superpower. If you'd like to learn more about the show or make a donation, just head on over to decidedlydry.com. Thank you so much for pushing play today. Let's get started. Hello, my sweet friends, and welcome back to the show. For this week's fun facts about Jess, I thought that I would be brave and share a few, well, my top three ultimate fears. This is just me kind of having a fun intro for you guys so you can kind of get to know me a little bit better. So, all right, here it goes. Number one, I am scared to death of pumping my own gas. (laughs) Here in Oregon, we don't have to pump our gas. So anytime I travel, if I'm in a position where I have to pump my own gas, once I pull that nozzle thingy, which I'm sure is the technical term, I am basically waiting for my car to explode. Number two, the Wizard of Oz. I used to have reoccurring nightmares of that stupid witch every single night. So she definitely ranks number two. Number three, not a fan of birds. Birds are my number three fear. They have dive bombed my head too many times while I've been out running, not to mention my dad, that sweet, sweet man, once sent me an article that said crows actually remember your face. Let's just chew on that for a minute. All right. So on a serious note, let's get to today's episode. Today, I am interviewing Maggie Jensen. Maggie Jensen is an alternative recovery coach, and she is the creator of the Magnify Method, which is an up-to-date science-backed recovery program, which basically helps her clients learn to think different, to drink different, or never again. She is an adult child of an alcoholic, and she also considers herself an ex-alcoholic, which she knows can be controversial. But here's the deal. She's here to tell her story and allow you to be the judge. I had a blast getting to know Maggie and hearing all about her story. What I really, really loved about her is she practically radiates positivity and is committed to helping people feel as good as she does. What's not to love about that? I really hope you enjoy our chat, and thanks again for pushing play. Welcome back, everybody. This is Jess with Decidedly Dry, and today I am so excited to have Maggie Jensen. Hi, Maggie. Hey, Jess. I'm so excited to be here, too. Oh, my gosh. Me, too. I'm so excited to hear your story and just hear all of the goodies that you have for us today. So thanks again for taking the time. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I just really get so thrilled to connect with other people in this space. And uh, I kind of say like nerd out on the mindset topics and the lifestyle topics of recovery. So uh, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And I don't know about you, but anytime I get done with these chats, I feel like my sobriety is like 10 times stronger too. I just leave feeling like refreshed, like, yes, 
okay, let's go. <laughs> Definitely. It's almost like it inspires and reconnects to like, oh, my purpose and, and everything. It's always higher energy leaving. So absolutely, <laughs> great days after this. I know. I can't wait. <laughs> All right, my dear. So um, I know you've listened to the show before and you know how these chats go, but we're just going to start by kind of introducing yourself. So if you want to tell listeners who you are, where you live, what you like to do for fun and all that good stuff. Absolutely. Thank you. So uh, yeah, I'm Maggie Jensen. I call myself Magnify Maggie on the interwebs. Uh, and that's because I created an alternative recovery approach. Uh, and I call it the Magnify Method. And it's super holistic. It's putting together fitness and nutrition, as well as really in-depth granular psychological aspects to help people think different in order to drink different or never again. And that's spanned from my own life with my alcoholic mom and then my own behavior uh, turning into an addictive binge drinker for almost 16 years. Um, so I kind of use humor behind it, but I've been intertwined with alcohol since age five. And I really had to do something different to break those ties and that identity to become who I am now. And I, when I did it, I kind of was like looking around for somebody to like slap me on the wrist. Like you didn't go to AA, you didn't do the traditional things, but like you're feeling better. That's not how we do it. And I was like, oh, okay, nobody's coming after me now. Let me put this out into the world. I was so excited to teach people about it. So um, that's really what I've done with the Magnify Method. And uh, I just think that it's so important to get other perspectives out there. I think it was hearing other people's perspectives that really turned that light bulb for me of like, I doesn't have to look like the traditional shameful guilt ridden path that I had seen my mom go down. Um, so let me do it myself. So uh, I operate the magnifying method virtually, but I actually live in Las Vegas. So I get lots of practice of reframing my thoughts um, to doing healthy things. Uh, it's not just about, you know, it being quote unquote sin city. It's uh, getting out there and getting active in the mountains and going for hikes and being outdoors. And, and there's such a healthy community here that people don't really recognize or think about um, that you just really have to decide to put yourself in those rooms and put yourself in that environment. And so basically, I guess all in all, I'm just here living kind of a contrasted life from what people would think of sobriety. Um, and I love just being able to connect and tell my story with it. Oh, I love that. And I want to definitely hear more about Magnify Maggie and all the things that you're doing, your method, because that is what's so beautiful about the time right now that we're in is just all the different options like you're talking about, that there's not one way to get sober. There are so many different beautiful ways that can be really exciting. So thank you for sharing all that. Yeah. Well, let's go back to, to the start, to the start of the story. So what's your history with alcohol? When did you start? When did the relationship kind of start to change? Anything you want to share about all of that? Yeah, thank you. And I guess to even uh, go back before my start with alcohol, it, I strongly believe I wouldn't have started had I not been in the environment that I had been um, as a kid. So I was five and I was the youngest child. Uh, my two brothers, my middle brother was two years older than me. My oldest brother, nine years older than me. Um, I was the youngest five years old when my mom started to drink. And obviously at that time, I didn't even know what that meant. Um, I just realized that she started to disconnect. She started to isolate herself and it 
as a kid, I noticed the feeling of, it was almost like being homesick when I was at home. That's the best word or the best way to describe uh, what I felt when I was about five or six. And it was when I was six that my brother Eric was telling me our parents are getting a divorce. And around seven was when Eric was telling me mom is an alcoholic. This is what alcohol is. Um, I was learning to call the cops when things were going really, really uh, physically awry but then also learning to lie to the cops when they got there, um, really creating this culture in our house of secretive lifestyle, uh, always protecting my mom so she could get her drink. And we loved her so much. We just wanted her to be happy. Um, and then, you know, we'd find ourselves seven, eight years old going into her room to pour alcohol down the drain, mm. um, to sneak her bottles out of her purse. And so I'm not alone in this. And there's so many kids in our country, but around the world that deal with this silently. And um, it's this type of environment and conditioning. What I'm finding and through my studying is this is the type of conditioning that leads to addiction later in life. Uh, we always say addiction is genetic, but Dr. Gabor Mate is, is all on board saying it's not just a genetic disease. It's your conditioning and really your self-image that you attain as a child of an alcoholic we grew up with all of this tumult in the house and it was Eric who was more of the enabler and he was at that ripe age where he was really able to understand what my mom was going through. Uh, he would protect her the most. My oldest brother was a teenager and so he was just trying to get out of the house sure, and that sure. kind of left me lost. I was feeling like the only thing that brought me joy was school and, and doing good. So my teachers would praise me because I wasn't getting that from my mom. Um, and somehow trying to get those affirmations from other people in my life. And for me, that was okay because that offered a lot of, uh, what we call childhood success wins. And it offers this idea of like, okay, I'm going through something at home that isn't positive, but I have these other positive experiences to anchor into. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately for Eric, he didn't have that. And he took his life when he was 14 and I was 12 and we were home alone. He just wasn't able to separate himself from the emotions that my mom carried. And for me, even though I hated alcohol, everything that it had done to our family, everything that I had learned about addiction. And at that time I had been taught that it was a disease and it's going to run in the family. And once you're an addict, you're always an addict. You're always right. going to struggle. These are all these things that I was kind of indoctrinated into thinking. It was only about six months after Eric died that I thought alcohol would be a good choice. Hmm. I need to escape. I need to soothe this pain. And it wasn't just the trauma of his death, but how my family handled it afterwards. Um, my mom never asked me, are you okay? Mm -hmm. It was always about her uh, losing her son, which I can't imagine that pain because I, I don't have any kids myself, but for her, it was always just go inward. Um, and it created this victim mentality. She basically wrote off Jake and I because she was in so much pain over losing her favorite child. Mm. 
And she would go into spats of, of claiming you should have been the one that took your life. If I lost a kid, I wish it would have been you. And that led me deeper into this self-image that I'm unlovable. I always mess up. I'm never going to do the right thing. I might have the best intentions, but I'm always going to end up messing it all up. And that is what really, in my opinion, really uh, catapulted me into that drinking behavior starting at 13, turning into binge addictive drinking that I was absolutely unable to escape. It was always that self-image that I needed it to be comfortable, to be happy. And it played a lot of tricks. I know, I know your audience, I know you know this. It plays so many tricks on you because you think, oh, it's the life. It's life doing these things to me. And you realize, wow, all this time alcohol was really exacerbating those feelings and that identity. Um, so it was, like I said, 15 years of that. I, I lost multiple jobs. I dropped out of college. That further instilled that identity of I'm powerless and I am just destined for failure. Anything I put my mind to, I fail at, including quitting drinking. Mm -hmm. Every time I would try to quit, it would go three to four weeks. I'm going to the gym. I'm eating right. Yay. And then something would happen. And that belief that I'm always a failure, that I'm always going to be given the kind of the short end of the stick, right. that belief always led me back to the bottle. And it was... Well, 2018, um, the one person in my life that really offered that hope and that unconditional love was my dad. And he passed away at the end of 2018. And that really was, uh, I mean, it got worse before it got better. But thankfully, over time, that was really the thing that opened my eyes to, wow, you need to get your life together. You need to yeah. get your stuff straightened out. Um, 2019 was a pretty miserable blur, but I had a lot of light bulb moments going off and accumulatively they went off enough that at the beginning of 2020, I said, I'm going to do dry January. Keep in mind, beginning of 2020, we don't know what's happening about to happen. No. Yeah. <laughs> Just the timing of it is in my mind, impeccable. The universe had the puzzle pieces playing along too. And I'm just so thankful because it was 2020. I said, I'm going to go for dry January. And, uh, I did pretty well. Uh, I think I had in like the third week, um, I had a little slip up, but it wasn't anything embarrassing. And I was able to kind of move on. I just said, okay, you know what? You did better than you've ever done before. Just keep going. Well, then it was February 15th. I had another slip up. This one was more embarrassing though. This one was at a wedding. Uh, I yelled at my husband who had just had neck surgery and I really wanted to dance. And he wouldn't dance with me. And I yelled at him in front of everybody. Oh, thank you for laughing. I laugh now. I have to, you know, because yeah. someone said on the show one time, like people that have, well, I'm going to say this wrong, but people that have quit drinking are some of the funniest, most amazing people, because now we can look back and be like, it was ridiculous. Like we can laugh about it now. That behavior, Yeah. And it's like, at the time I was so, I felt so justified. How could you not want to dance with your wife at the wedding? Blah, blah. He literally had a neck brace on. So, um, <laughs> I woke up February 16th and I said, I am so done with this anxiety. I'm so done with this feeling of shame. What I really hated was waking up knowing that I needed to apologize for something, but not having any idea what it was about. Sure. And so that was February 16th. 
And I said, you know what? I'm, I'm going to do it for real. I'm doing this for real. I'm extending dry January out just infinite. And I told myself, I don't have to say that I'm going to quit drinking forever, but I'm going to quit drinking long enough that I'm going to learn who I am without it. Mm -hmm. And what really happened in the first month before quarantine was I realized all of these granular dreams and hopes and thoughts that I had that I was just pushing to the wayside because I was prioritizing my drinking. Even though I thought that I was wanting to quit, I was still prioritizing it. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, let me reprioritize. I'm re I'm prioritizing my workouts. And I'd always been interested in fitness, but I was always just doing things randomly. Mm -hmm. I started to do structured programs what? Like following a program where like I do one workout that builds on to the next workout that builds. And that really boosted my confidence because I could see my physical fitness changing. Uh, and I started to tell myself, wow, I'm not a failure. When I actually set my mind to something with a strategy, man, I can actually do pretty good. I'm doing it. Yeah. Uh, and the same thing with nutrition. Uh, that just really taught me that I had control over what I put in my mouth, even though it's something different than drinking. Mm -hmm. uh, it taught me the focus and kind of the discipline, as well as this appreciation for my internal health. We always focus on drinking being negative for behavior. And then there's sometimes this like narrative spun up just lightly about, you know, alcohol not being good for your body. Very rarely do people give that any kind of power, though. But when I started to actually put food into my body and thinking of it as medicine, it made me appreciate all of like my internal organs and my muscles and my energy. So then when I thought about drinking just more and more, it just seemed like a turnoff. I was mm -hmm. like, that's not going to make my heart any healthier. That's not going to make me feel any better for my workouts. That's actually going to make me feel worse for my workouts. So all of my identity and my thoughts were changing. Mm. And in addition to that, I thought, well, I knew that AA was pretty much all centered around religion. At least that's what I experienced when my mom was going through it. And as a kid, I was going through Al-Anon. And then um, as an early 20 year old, I was like, you know what? I Maybe I should do AA like my mom did. Um, I realized that wasn't really what was helping me because it felt, first of all, I was angry at God mm -hmm. because of my past. Um and I felt like it was putting a lot of the focus on external, trying to control what's going around you externally, what's going on with other people. And you have to rely on this community. And if the community is unhealthy, you're probably going to feel unhealthy too. Or if the community just isn't there, if you can't go to a meeting, how are you going to be alone with that? And what I found was like, I wanted to build this idea of myself being strong in my solitude. A community is extremely important, but if the community isn't there, can I still stand on my own two feet? Sure. And so I started to look into psychology around addiction and I felt like, why is AA like the grandfathered in way to do it? And I don't ever see any type of psychology really implemented in the education in the big book. And I started to um, just go down the rabbit holes. Every single person that I could find as a resource, every book that they would mention, every author. And what I found was that like I was breaking up with Quitlet. Quitlet was really having me focused on addiction, focused on drinking, focused on trying to avoid. 
versus learning about um, psychology around self-image. And I've talked a little bit about that already. Um, psychology around your unconscious programming, your belief that you have to have a drink, your belief that that's going to make it any better, and your belief about you. Um, and as I was doing all these different things, like I said, it was just like these magical moments of like, nobody's talking about this, but this is working for me. And I know that this is super duper polarizing and even controversial. Um, but with what I have found in this kind of what I call a, a reconditioning therapy of Magnify Method, when you create your new identity that has nothing to do with alcohol, if you are to drink, it does not turn into a dangerous relapse. It does not turn into the shame and the guilt. And I know a lot of people out there are very afraid to go completely sober to the point that that keeps them from making any progress at all. And when we can say, you know what, we're going to make progress and you don't have to quit drinking, what ends up happening with at least the Magnify clients that I've seen is that they become very smart around their boundaries with alcohol. And they'll enter a program saying, I don't want to quit drinking, but I want to be healthier. And by the end of the program, they're saying, I could have a drink, but I don't want it. And I'm that's so glad you said that. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's it exactly does. what I was wanting from that experience for them. So sorry to interrupt. No, not at all. Like keep going. Um, but no, I am I'm just so glad that you point that out because you know, especially with the quitlet, I feel like we go through phases in our sobriety and it's different for everybody. Like in the beginning, I couldn't get enough. I'm like, give me every book, every podcast, anything that can distract me from mm -hmm. wanting that drink, you know, but then you get to a point where you're like, okay, I'm a little burnt out. Like I need more, but I don't necessarily need that part right now. And mm -hmm. I also love that you talk a little bit about, you know, the fact that we, I, I could have a drink. I could have a drink right after this podcast but you get to a point where you're like, but I don't want it. I really play it forward and I weigh my options. And I'm like, why do I need that? Mm -hmm. Is it going to make me feel better? No. You know, is it going to make me feel those feelings of, you know, disappointment and shame after I do it, after going X amount of years without drinking? Absolutely. So it's like, you really get to a point where you have strengthened that sobriety muscle and really weighed what's more important to you. So, oh, I love that so much. I'm glad. Did I cut you off? Was there more you no. wanted to say on that? Okay. No, I felt like that was a good point uh, for us to come together and talk about it. I, I think it's so important. You kind of call it like the sobriety muscle and, and I'll kind of call it in the magnified language is just like your, your freedom identity. Mm -hmm. Um, for me, I didn't want necessarily my identity to be sober Maggie, just like I hated it being drunk Maggie. Mm -hmm. I absolutely hated everybody knowing me as drunk party girl Maggie. Mm -hmm. But the more I thought about, oh, well, if I'm sober Maggie, that still means that I am somehow relating myself back to alcohol. Mm -hmm. And because I had just been spun up in it since five years old, I'm like, I don't want to be, I don't want anything now, ironically, now my company is about recovery, but, um, <laughs> you know, I didn't want it to be, that's Maggie. She's sober because she had a problem. And I knew right. in my mind, that's what would happen is I have to be sober because I have a problem. And I think for a lot of people, my mom included, um, ruminating over the fact that they had a problem 
kept them from enjoying the sobriety mm-hmm. or enjoying what I call like the freedom, you know, what's the opposite of addiction? Is it sobriety or is it freedom? Is it health? Mm-hmm. Johan Hari would call it connection. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think that it's absolutely like strengthening that sobriety muscle or just strengthening your identity of who you are without it, without mm-hmm. alcohol. And maybe not even, I mean, another thing we haven't talked on is labeling, you know, mm-hmm. like how that can be, I don't know how you feel about it, but personally, I think it could be good or bad. If mm-hmm. you want to label yourself and you can stay sober by putting that label on yourself, do it. Right. <laughs> but if you sit there and you're like, no, I don't want to be alcoholic Jess. I don't want to be, you know, sober Jess, like then, then don't focus on that. Don't put a label on it. Just do what makes you feel good. So right. I don't know if that's a good bridge into you have mentioned identifying as an ex-alcoholic. Do you want to touch mm-hmm. on that a little bit? Yeah. And even just to touch on the labeling aspect, I'm so glad you brought this up. I think that if a label serves you and makes you feel empowered, wear that label. But something that I even love um, amongst more up-to-date recovery systems like smart recovery is the omission of labels. Uh, I think in our world, pretty much anybody getting any type of negative result stems from them labeling themselves as something negative, something in line with that negative result, whether that be fitness, nutrition, recovery, your career. If you're not getting good results, you have to check, why do I think that I am not capable of doing that? What label have I put on myself? Mm -hmm. Um, And the fact that I call myself an ex-alcoholic, that's even stumbling into that gray area of using a label. But for me, that's a label that is empowering because whenever you say, and this goes back to even like Buddhism, uh, philosophy dating 6,000 plus years, whenever you put anything after I am, your mind will go to work to have you perform that behavior. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of different areas of psychology that describe this. I've mentioned self-image psychology, psycho-cybernetics, paradigms, unconscious programming. We have all sorts of data on this. If we think that we are a type of person, we will present ourselves and play that out. Mm-hmm. If you believe that you are, let's say, sober Maggie, it would be very difficult for me to get through life without focusing on abstaining from alcohol. Everything I was doing, I would be thinking in terms of abstain. How am I going to keep sober? How am I going to be sober, Maggie, in that situation? Or the opposite, going into AA rooms and saying, I am an alcoholic. You're identifying as your problematic behavior. That behavior is not part of you. That behavior is not your essence. It's not your spirit. It's not your personality. It's a negative program and it's a negative behavior pattern. You don't need to identify that as that because the more you identify as the addict, the more you're actually going to feel increased cravings, the more shame and guilt, self-doubt and worry you're going to experience, the more you're going to fall back on, I'm an addict. So I guess I just I got to perform this. Right. And what I find is that the more people that would say, I'm an addict, I'm an addict, they would actually end up making it. And this has happened for me. And uh, I've seen it in several, several different studies where people will say, I'm an addict, I'm an addict, but oh, I'm, I'm one month sober, one year sober. 
And then the one thing that gets them to go back to the alcohol is that they say, well, I'm an addict and I've been sober. This isn't me. On some level of their subconscious mind, they think if I'm an addict, I have to perform that. And whatever little hurdle it is, they're going to talk themselves back into it. And that's kind of what my feeling was. And this is no judgment of anyone that has used AA, like use what works for you. But just that phrase, I am an addict, in my mind, my personal opinion, it is almost like you're giving yourself permission. Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. know. I'll probably I'm- get some feedback on that. But <laughs> that's just how I- my brain functions. Like that is my thought. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I've gotten enough feedback on that for, for both of us. <laughs> I okay, perfect. A lot. Um, and, and here's, I guess, to those people, uh, here's something that I just want to offer as some food for thought is that there is absolutely power in accepting that your behavior patterns are negative. You cannot change it until you take ownership. But there is a huge difference to your psyche, to your subconscious mind that doesn't know the difference between what's real and what's imagined. It will just go to work on whatever you feed it. If you say, I'm an addict, that's completely different than I struggled with addictive behavior. Mm -hmm. Because that's giving you the opportunity to relate to it versus be it. I can relate to my behavior and say, how would I switch that up? But if I am thinking about it as me, as humans, we don't think it's really possible to change me. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to have to deal with this for my whole life. And I'm just going to have to be kind of managing and mitigating and trying to like swerve out the hurdles versus actually being like, no, you can break up with that behavior and you can be just. Right. And it always makes me think of, I mean, so much of sobriety in my opinion, just having a fitness background relates to health and fitness so much. And that made me think of like, you know, okay, if I look in the mirror and I'm saying I'm fat, like I, I'm, I'm not a runner. I'm not this, you know, whatever, really labeling ourselves. It does mess with your head because instead of saying that maybe like you're saying, reframing that or rephrasing it, reprogramming our brain into, okay, maybe I'm not my best right now. Mm, Yes. But how can I do better? You know, just making those baby steps. Same with drinking, you know, okay. Mm -hmm. I've made mistakes. Maybe I don't have a great track record, but what can I do about that? Let's switch. You know, I always like to say like, basically how bad as it used to be is how good as it can be in the future. Mm -hmm. The more we sit around and think about all of the bad track record, the more likely we are to repeat that. And there's definitely uh, an area of the magnify method that could almost step on uh, like spirituality and even like um, universal cosmic science where I really study how thoughts become behavior, become results, law of attraction, uh, law of vibration. And, And you mentioned this earlier, When you look in the mirror, even like talking about maybe somebody trying to go on a fitness routine or even plug in here, we're about to come up on New Year's resolutions, plug in like when you try to set a new goal in your mind, 
your thought is, man, I really want to be better. And let's use drinking as the example here. New Year's resolution. I really want to be able to go without drinking, without needing it. That's their thought. But in their mind, in their subconscious mind, their belief is that's going to be really hard. Totally. I'm a drunk. I'm an alcoholic. So anytime they think I want to do better, oh, but I couldn't Mm -hmm. because I'm a drunk, I'm an alcoholic. When they get to that belief, it's that belief that sets up this feeling in our body. We're going to feel like we want to move into action and and do different, or we're going to feel like holding ourselves away, burrowing, Netflixing, Mm -hmm. drinking based off of the belief. So I know in a lot of areas of recovery, they are focusing on thoughts, but I I really say it's more about the belief, what you expect. When you can change that, even if it feels fantastical, if it feels like a straight up lie in the beginning, that's okay. Over time, you're going to reprogram that belief. So instead of saying, I'm an addict, I'm never going to get this right. I'm a drunk. Change that belief to I'm free and powerful. Mm -hmm. I'm healthy. I'm productive. And you can really use words that contrast what you're feeling right now. If you're feeling maybe lazy from hangovers and alcohol and everything, then you say, I'm energetic. Right. Over time, that belief is actually going to be programmed into your habitual thinking pattern. It's going to make your body feel better. Mm -hmm. So then you're actually motivated to go do things that teach you, like you said, mentioned, or like you had mentioned, like fitness. Um, like actually go do things to prove to yourself. I'm a lot stronger than I thought I was. I'm actually a badass. Yeah. And give you that fire, give you that wind. So then you're like, oh, okay. So now the next day I'm believing in myself a little bit more. I'm going to try something new, try something new. And it really does come down to not just thoughts, but your beliefs and your expectations. What do you expect? And if you dig deep and you say, well, I expect to struggle with this drinking forever, you probably will. Mm -hmm. But if you can switch that and say, I expect that I'm really powerful and I can get through this, that's going to change your entire, your entire world. Yep. Yeah. They say the mind, or I'm sorry, they say the world creates the mind and then the mind creates the world. You're going to project all of that new confidence out into the world. You're going to feel like you're living in a brand new place. It's so exciting. I know you know that. It's so exciting. It's so (laughs) exciting. Well, and change is hard. And so what do we do in the beginning is we focus on all of the hard parts of it and all the negatives, (laughs) you know, oh, if I quit drinking, what are my friends going to think? I'm not going to have any fun. I can't go out like, but I'm a mom, you know, I deserve this. You know, what about weddings or birthdays? Like we instantly go into this negative spiral of like, how horrible it's going to be. And don't get me wrong. It is super hard in the beginning. Mm-hmm. But like you said, if you change your mindset, like, okay, I've been following these sober accounts and all they talk about is how good it's going to get. So if I can just have that glimmer of hope that, no, I can do this. They can do it. Mm-hmm. I can do it. It's going to get really good. I'm going to sleep really well. I'm going to get healthy. And I'm going to prove to myself that I can keep this promise, you know? So Oh, right. so much good stuff. So much good stuff. All right. I'm cheating and totally looking at my list of questions to make no, you're sure okay. we are on track, which we are, because this has been so great. Um, I would like to back up just a little bit and I want to know, or have you tell listeners 
big or small, what were some of the benefits that you started feeling? Let's kind of focus on those good things to give them a, a preview of what's to come. Oh, heck yeah. You already mentioned my favorite. And probably the first thing I noticed was sleep. Mm-hmm. I thought that everybody just felt like crap all the time. <laughs> and so when I, I think it was like maybe um, 10 to 12 days into my successful abstinence that I was like, I'm not waking up at 4 a.m. with a racing heart. I don't have insomnia. I'm actually a really good sleeper if I don't mess it up with alcohol. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> and then in addition to that, I had always told myself and fully believed that I was not a morning person. Hmm. That actually fed into the self-image that kept me drinking all night and sleeping all day. What do you know? <laughs> um, so when I started to uh, actually challenge myself, okay, I gave myself like a bedtime and a good time to wake up. It was uh, about 6.30 every morning. I found that like once I pushed through that 15 minutes of, of sleepiness in the morning, I was really energized and it lasted all day long. And I was like, wow, people just feel this good naturally. This is what my body can do. Right. So to anybody just starting out, get so excited about quality sleep because that can not just make you feel better for the day, but it helps process emotions. If you are struggling with depression, anxiety, um, cutting back, quitting alcohol, obviously will alleviate a lot of that, but whatever's going on in life right now for you, if it's highly stressful, then seven to eight hours, maybe even nine hours in the beginning, uh, will be really helpful for your brain to actually process those emotions naturally. You're going to feel amazing. Um, and then outside of that, I think that I was really, uh, I was really negative about people that were very routine. Internally, it was very intimidating to me to see people with their life so put together. So I would judge them a lot. Oh, they're boring. Oh, they do the same thing every day. Oh my God. How stressful. <laughs> yeah. How, they must feel so stressed out that they have to abide by that every day. But what I found was that a human body actually really loves a routine. We run on rhythms. And when you can have a daily routine that kind of feeds into that rhythm as far as like a morning walk where you're getting sun before 10 a.m., that has such a positive impact on your happy hormones as well as your circadian rhythm. Um, so doing that every morning really got me into this healthy mindset. And what I call uh, with my clients is we're building the health consciousness. So you're literally, instead of thinking and relating everything to alcohol, you're thinking, how am I going to get my steps today? How am I going to, you know, uh, get my, my protein and my water and all of these things, my sunlight. So I started doing that kind of stuff for myself. Um, so daily walks. And then I've mentioned the workout stuff. And for me, I had the background and I invested um, almost immediately during quarantine in, into actually getting professionally certified as a personal trainer. But to somebody that doesn't have the interest of learning all of that stuff for themselves, I suggest starting a group fitness class. I really find that having the routine of going, say, every day at the 8.30 a.m. class mm -hmm. or the 6.30 p.m. class, uh, whatever time spot. I was even going to 5.30 a.m. pure bar classes. I loved it. I loved my mornings with like that. Um, Whatever that looks like, it offers community, it offers routine, and then this aspect of obviously physical fitness. Totally. You're going to start paying attention to your muscles 
and your heart and your blood, uh, like your blood pressure. And so when you're paying attention to that, you don't want to poison yourself. You don't want to put that alcohol into your body, especially not at the rate or the level that you were at one time. So you've mentioned this already, just like that health and fitness kind of routine, the sleep, eating three meals a day, not skipping food. What? I know. Crazy. (laughs) It's like becoming a human being again, really. It's really simple. And I think a lot of people um, get afraid. They think it needs to be more of a, maybe a complicated process. And it's not, it's It's challenging, but it's really just putting um, the simple lifestyle habits of a normal human into Mm -hmm. your life. It's just different. It's change, Mm -hmm. you know, and I love that you pointed out the group fitness class because that can hit so many different, you know, boxes of things that people are looking for, you know, in sobriety, you know, a new hobby, something Mm -hmm. that's healthy, community, routine, all those things you just listed. So good. And then it spills, it spills over like, okay, what else can I do? Or I met these new friends in my class and now we're hiking this weekend. Like it just kind of has that ricochet effect. So I love that advice. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a great place to network and and meet those new friends. And if you're going to the same class every day or the same, like maybe sometimes you do the same morning class or the night class, you're going to start seeing familiar faces. Mm -hmm. And there's this theory that if you see somebody seven times, even if you don't say anything seven times and they don't hurt your feelings, then mentally you think of them as a friend. I love that. (laughs) So like after seven times, all of a sudden you just like walk up to each other and you're like, Hey, do you want to go to coffee sometime? (laughs) And all of a sudden you're best friends forever. (laughs) I love it. I love it. (laughs) Oh, so good. Um, okay. I'm looking again. Let's see. We have hit on so many good things and I'm just so glad to finally have met you and talked to you. This has been so great. I know I'm having so much fun. (laughs) Um, I would like to know looking forward, uh, what, what's, what's ahead? What's in this new chapter ahead of you? Yeah, thank you. I always think that um, the things that are going to keep you on your course are having really positive goals. And when I say goals, not just like, um, I got to lose weight, I got to do this. Goals are for growing and like becoming a different type of person. So for me, I'm always thinking about how can I become more of an influential person with Magnify? How can I really spread this message um, to more people, those people that are feeling hopeless with the traditional routes? And so I'm working really diligently right now to um, create and launch an online course that's self-paced, that has a community aspect. Um, so I'm getting very techy. I always used to say, I'm not a techie person. And then I realized that's a self-image idea. Snap out of that. (laughs) So um, I'm learning to do all of these technical things for online platforming for um, the Magnify community there. um, And that's launching mid-November. Exciting. Uh, I'm so excited. Uh, It's got six weeks of one-on-one kind of coaching like videos and education and then the community. And then I also am um, launching a group program in December. Basically, my idea is just to um, help inspire people with this new idea of what really can empower you. Mm -hmm. And so I'm seeing, you know, opportunities in my future for perhaps speaking engagements. And I would love to create like seminars and summits for our 
type of people that just want to come together and have that community, but also feel super empowered in their own solitude as well. So um, I really want to work with speaking engagements. And then beyond that, um, it's a big goal of mine to give back to the kids. So children Mm -hmm. of alcoholics, I think that there's definitely a need for a revamp for the D.A.R.E. program, um, as well as maybe like a subset for children identified as being in problematic homes mm-hmm. that they could maybe have their own group that they have every week they have fun activities and they have each other and and um, I think that I was blessed that I had something kind of magically happen for me as a kid with that aspect of school mm-hmm. I was actually brought into like this um this class where it was like other kids that were all very studious we loved to read and I thought it was like this little secret society And what I didn't know was that our counselor had actually identified all of us Mm. um, to come together and um, create these positive experiences because she knew that we weren't getting those at home. And so I love I would love to take a page out of her book and create that on a on a large scale. Um, Oh, I love that so much. Well, and I I always like to end with focusing on the good and I'm not I'm not going to be a Debbie Downer, but what an excellent reminder too. I work in a school. I'm a part-time librarian. And just talking with you today has been so powerful to me personally, because it reminds me of all the things that we don't know, you know, that goes on at home and how important it is as someone in education in the school. Mm-hmm. That sometimes that's a safe place for kids. Sometimes that's where they feel loved and safe and included. And I just think that story of your, your secret society, your club, you know, is just so beautiful and God bless those educators that put that That together and saw that and that you had no idea. It was just this wonderful (laughs) little group. I think that's the cutest, most amazing thing. So (laughs) thank you for being so real and just sharing, you know, everything that you shared. Thank you. Thank you for letting me uh, be vulnerable, I guess, um, because this is, you know, things that we wouldn't always just share with um, anybody. And and I think you're right that when you don't understand the what's going on at home, it's so easy to just skate by and let kids be kids. But school sometimes is that shining beacon of hope. Mm-hmm. And I love that you're going to be able to take this with you, too. And and um have those eyes and ears to the ground with their kids at school too. Absolutely. All right, my love, I could be talking for, you know, another hour with you. This has been so great. Um, But I always end with the same question and it is to the one or many people that are listening right now and feeling inspired to make a change. What advice can you give them? My advice is to believe in you. And as cliche as that might sound, I'm talking about your deep internal beliefs about yourself. Question if you really are incapable or if you just feel like it's hard right now because you are a magical freaking human being. And as soon as you believe in yourself, you're going to have that secret sauce that will help you get to sobriety or successful moderation, whatever your goal is. Just believe in yourself and it'll happen. Amen. 
All right, girl. How can people get a hold of you? I'll have all of your links, of course, in my show notes. But what is the best way for people to get in touch? Sure. Uh, I'm very active on Instagram. Um, and that seems to be the easiest if anybody wants to reach out and DM privately and discreetly. Uh, that's under my handle, Magnify Maggie. Magnify just like the glass. Maggie, M-A-G-G-I-E. And I actually have um, a little ebook in my link through my bio for your audience. It's my Habits for Happiness ebook. It's got some really granular tips just to start embracing this identity. Um, so your audience can go in and click that through Instagram, Magnify Maggie. I'm on TikTok, Magnify Maggie J and YouTube, the Magnify Maggie channel. So anywhere anybody needs support, they can reach out there, but I find Instagram is the easiest. <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you so much again for taking the time. It's been an honor to have you and I can't wait for listeners to hear this. Thanks, Jess. So good to meet you. If you'd like to learn more about the show or make a donation, you can head over to decidedlydry.com. If you enjoy the show, the best way to support it is to subscribe and to leave an awesome rating or review over on Apple Podcasts. It's sure been a treat spending this time with you. And just remember, if the only thing you did today was stay sober, you are winning. I'll see you next time.